0: Of note, this episode was pre-recorded. More information regarding COVID-19 may have become available. Please follow local authorities and CDC guidelines, practice social distancing, and wear a mask. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. I am your host, Dr. Wita L. Brown. I inspire and promote movement. I explain how running adds to life from a mental wholeness aspect. How obstacles can be overcome in life to make it to your finish line. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, Episode 6. Today we have Marquita M. Qualls. Marquita Qualls, PhD, also known as Dr. Q, has over 20 years of leadership experience in consulting, coaching, and motivating people who want to produce order out of their chaos though a scientist by training she commands a masterful understanding of the interpersonal skills needed to thrive in today's fast-paced and competitive business environment her technical side drives an ability to gain perspectives and analyze feedback while at the same time connecting with clients and guiding them through towards achieving results. This has enabled her to function and make seamless transitions between the scientific and non-technical worlds. Dr. Quall's professional career began at GlaxoSmithKline, one of the leading pharmaceutical companies in the world. During nearly a decade at GSK, She held roles of increased global responsibility, spanning drug development, technology evaluation, program management, strategy, and people development. She has a gift for listening to what's not being said and asks the probing questions to help arrive at a solution. Her style is often described as energetic Engaging and empowering. She understands what it takes to be an extraordinary leader. She is a former national president of the National Organization for the Professional Advancement of Black Chemists and Chemical Engineers and was a member of the team that created the leadership development system for the American Chemical Society the world's largest scientific society. She has also served on the Editorial Advisory Board of Chemical and Engineering News, the Chemical Science Roundtable of the National Academies, and as an entrepreneur in residency with Innovative Mississippi. I have known Nikki, I call her Nikki, since middle school. We both are from a small town in Mississippi, Riceaver, Mississippi. We were in Forage together, and I spent many hours at her house growing up. Welcome, Doctor Qualls, to Running Is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. Tell me what motivated you to become a scientist.
1: What motivated me to become a scientist? I am and have always been a why person. I want to know why things work, why things happen, what causes this. And it just seemed really natural. So science has always been in me, the inquisitiveness and asking questions. And that's one of the main things that scientists do. You ask questions and you try to find solutions
0: to those questions. So it's a fit. So did you always want to be a scientist? or You always knew you would be somewhere doing some type of research?
1: You know, I think that's an interesting question to say, because when I was growing up, I thought I wanted to be a doctor, right? I wanted to be a doctor, a medical doctor, because, you know, you go up, you be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher or something. And it wasn't until probably like my freshman, sophomore year in college that I realized that I could still be a doctor and help people, but it wouldn't be a medical doctor. It would be a PhD. So more along in the research fields.
0: What schools did you go to and why did you pick those schools and why did you pick your particular focus of chemistry for your PhD?
1: Interestingly enough, I actually started out in biology as a major, but that was just all wrong. Mm -hmm. I loved chemistry. I loved chemistry, even from back in high school in Brookhaven with Miss Theral as my chemistry teacher. I don't even know what made me think that I needed to be a biology major, but I started out and then I quickly transferred or changed my major to chemistry. I was at Tougaloo College, which is a great school in Mississippi, historically black college located in North Jackson, Mississippi. I was there for a year. Long story on that. But I was at Tougaloo and Tougaloo produces over 50% of Mississippi's Black lawyers and doctors. So a very strong STEM and political science type of school. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Absolutely. And then after my first year, though, I had an opportunity to transfer to Tennessee State. And I did. So I went to Tennessee State, majored in chemistry, did a lot of research. I did undergraduate research. I was doing research with a program through the National Institutes of Health called the MARC program. Mm -hmm. And that just meant that during the school year, I was doing research. And every summer I would go off to a remote location or a distant school and also do research. So I spent one summer at Purdue, one summer at Howard, and then I had internships. So research, I mean, I've just been doing research for all of this time. When I graduated, I had to decide, you know, what's next and graduate school. It was I had a very good research experience at Purdue and I ended up going there for graduate school. So I got my Ph.D. from Purdue in chemistry, specific discipline of organic chemistry. And what a lot of people don't know is I was the first African-American woman to get a Ph.D. in organic chemistry from Purdue.
0: Okay,
1: And. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, yeah, impressive, but kind of sad uh, at the same time that we're still in the 2000s or 1999s or two You're still dealing with firsts, but it was. And so first in organic chemistry, but actually only the fourth overall Black woman American to get a PhD in chemistry from Purdue. Mm. After that, I left. And the research that I was doing was more pharmaceutical related or therapeutic and drug related. So I worked in the pharmaceutical industry and that's where I spent all of my corporate career. I left and then I started my own company after I left. the. I took an early retirement and then started my own company, Entropia Consulting, which is what
0: I do today. How long did it take you to complete your Ph.D. studies? What's that question about? What do you mean how long? I'm just curious if someone wants to know. I know everyone's different as far as their route to get a Ph.D., but like how long as far as schooling? How many years? So it
1: varies. And the reason I say it varies and my situation was a little different. I chose a slightly different path. So I'm a chemist, an organic chemist. But the nature of the work that I was doing, I was developing drug delivery systems from the chemical perspective, the chemical side. But then I wanted to test what they look like in animal models or, Mm -hmm. you know, mammalian cell culture lines. And so what typically happens and I am going to go back and tell you the actual numbers, but it's not a, you know, a direct thing for me. So I went through my Ph.D. I started in 94 And I started in August of 94, and I defended February 1st in 2001. So you would think that that's, what, six and a half, almost seven years, Mm -hmm. but it's not seven years throughout your program. What I did at the end of my program, you've heard of Mm -hmm. postdocs. So after you get your PhDs, most people go on to do a postdoc if they want to do a different area of study. Instead of me doing a postdoc, I just tacked on another year to my graduate program so that I could do the mammalian cell culture. So I learned a completely different skill set. So outside mm-hmm. of just your regular chemistry, I had to learn more of the biology. So it's kind of full circle. So I was doing the biology. I actually started a mammalian cell culture facility in my lab and in my department. So I had to mm-hmm. learn from the ground up everything that most people who had been doing mammalian cell culture, the biochemist, that's what I learned. So. I'd say the Ph.D. part of it was really only about five and a half, six years. But then when I tacked on that additional part, that's what took it up to the additional, what, six and six, almost seven years, six and a half years. Typical, though, I mean, I really caution people in saying, oh, in the science areas, in the STEM, I'll put it that way, Mm -hmm. because so much of it is based on your research. Some people You know, much like a marathon or anything in running, some people can finish it in four hours flat. Other people's it take 14 hours, you know, but maybe not as long for some people. But yeah, it just depends on the research. If you have good research and you have good data and results, you can probably get through in four or five years if your experiments aren't working right. And if you aren't as focused and dedicated, it could take you six, maybe seven years.
0: What are some obstacles that you experienced as you were doing your PhD work?
1: It's all about perspective. Mm-hmm. And given the time frame that I was there and starting my program, it was really more of a cultural than environmental thing. So not only was I the first Black woman to do the PhD, I was the only Black person in my incoming class of PhD students. That coupled with being in the middle of West Lafayette, Indiana in the early 90s, some people just were not used to having people of color around. And mm-hmm. that included the students. I mean, I was TAing some labs and students were like, you're the first black person who I've ever seen in person. Wow. And you can think about it. I mean, for some of the students who are coming from some of these smaller towns in Indiana, mm-hmm. they may never have interacted with a person of color or a black person. So just some of those mindsets were probably the biggest challenges of overcoming or getting through this process. It's the people who you had to deal with.
0: How big was your
1: PhD class? My incoming class was 75. Okay.
0: So how did you deal with that? You just kind of focused on what you had to do to finish? I had a support system. You know, you have family. And then
1: once you are there, you start to build a community. So I worked within the Lafayette community. I joined a church and through church, other people to give you that support system. Okay.
0: Tell me, how was it working with GSK? GSK,
1: GlaxoSmithKline. At the time I was working with GSK, they had just, actually, I joined on the company at one of the legacy companies. And then shortly after I joined on, The merger was complete. And so it was very interesting times. At the time when I was there, it was one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. So it was just a lot of experience, a lot of exposure, a lot of learning about the industry from the development of drugs all the way to their corporate and social responsibilities, things that they did in the community, programs that they sponsored. So it was a lot, a lot of learning a lot of developing relationships and people who mentored me throughout the process. It was great
0: all around. So tell me since you work with drug development about like the three stages of approving a drug.
1: So, yeah, I always have to put the disclaimer out there is yes, I work in the pharmaceutical industry and yes, I am a researcher. I just want to be clear that I am not a clinical scientist. And I did not and was not responsible for recruiting or conducting patients or conducting any of the clinical trials. I was on teams, however, that when you have a drug and your drug is going into the clinic or going into clinical trials, you're still Mm -hmm. a part of the larger teams. And so you still know what you have to do. And so with me being on the chemical and the pharmaceutical side, We were responsible for preparing the drugs that were making it into preclinical and phase one, two, three trials. Okay, so I was on project teams, just not on the clinical and recruitment side. But whenever we had meetings, you got all of the data, you got all everything that was there because it was responsible. So I just want to put that disclaimer out there so people wouldn't say, oh, no, you're not a clinical scientist. No, I'm not. So that's not necessarily always my area of expertise, but I understand it enough so that I can explain it to my friends or family okay. or people who have questions about it. And then if you want to know anything in more detail, I can always say, hey, I know somebody who does this. Refer to them. But I think it's really important for us, particularly people of color, to understand at least a minimum or baseline of what it means when we talk about clinical trials. First of all, let's go back to just the drug and the drug development process. As a chemist, when you take a drug and you have that pill, whether it's a tablet, whether it's a capsule formulation, or even if it's a parenteral, whether it's a liquid that you Mm -hmm. are having to inject, that's a solution. That's a formulation. There's only a very small percentage or small part of that pill that you're taking that's actually the active ingredient or the API, the active pharmaceutical ingredient. Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Most of what's in that tablet, that pill, that capsule, that, you know, the solution, there are other things, they're fillers. Mm-hmm. And so there's a large part of making the drug of what you see that's called formulation. Mm-hmm. And there are even things that are in formulations that people have to be concerned about or we have to be concerned about when people take them. Because there are other reactions that may happen, not from the active pharmaceutical agreement or that drug, but it could be something that's in the formulation. Mm -hmm. Even people who are lactose intolerant, there Mm -hmm. are some lactose is used as a filler. And if you're lactose intolerant and depending upon your degree
0: of intolerance of
1: lactose, sometimes taking a pill can give you a reaction.
0: Like some people can't take the flu shot because they're allergic to eggs. Exactly. Exactly.
1: So those are all things that are important to keep in mind when you start talking about clinical trials and participating in these clinical trials or drugs. Sometimes it's not the drug that's bad. Sometimes it's just something that's in the formulation for the drug that gives people a reaction. Mm -hmm. Whenever you do have a drug, though, once you get it to the point where you have it and you have a formulation and you have a pill that's stable, now you want to see, is it effective? So you'll start hearing people talk about preclinical trials or clinical trials. Preclinical trials happen before they go into humans. So these are your animal studies. So anytime you hear about a preclinical, those are animal studies, animal models. And if they've shown to be safe in animals, then we can move on to humans. So when you get to phase one, that's the first time that you are starting out. And even in phase one, you have healthy volunteers, and it's a very, very, very small population. But what you want to know when you are dealing with phase one is, is it safe? And you're trying to determine the dosing level. So it's basically just about a safety protocol. you know. Okay. When you get to phase two, it's a larger population. And then you're starting to see or wanting to see, is it effective?
0: Does it work for
1: whatever? Does it work? And are you really getting any more adverse clinical effects or adverse side effects?
0: Question. So if you're in phase one and you come up with the dosing, is it multiple doses that they try for phase two to see if they're effective? To see if a certain It really
1: depends on the protocol. And so people who are designing these clinical trials, they're the ones that have to you know, you determine what it is. And so there's a safety profile. People can't see me as I'm moving my hand along the way, but there is a safety profile and protocol that people are looking at when,
0: looking when at they the are dose taking they these doses. Effective. Okay.
1: And so you want to have the most effective dose. But okay. even when you go into, you know, phase one or phase two trials, you have a limit and so you have to find out when it is most effective, efficacious. Mm-hmm. So if it's not enough, then they'll ramp it up. Okay. That's why phase.
0: This phase two is where you kind of play around with. The, right. The, the, okay. Because phase one is just the safety protocol. OK. But this
1: is important, though. And when particularly now that we're talking about finding a vaccines, and vaccines are a little different than therapeutics. But it takes time. Mm -hmm. And when people are rushing to get a drug through, whether it's a therapeutic or whether it's a vaccine, it takes time. Clinical trials, when you think about it, it takes about 13 years for a drug to be from the beginning, the development, Mm -hmm. all the way through phase three, phase four trials before it Mm -hmm. hits the market. 13 years. Most people who are in the pharmaceutical industry and working in pharma will never see their drug make it to market. Never. And if you are, you're very fortunate. Very few people actually see anything that they work on on the pharmaceutical side make it to market. Okay. Because it takes so long. There are so many drugs that fail in phase one or issue. They even fail in preclinical trials, and they never make it on. So when it does make it to phase one, phase two or phase three, then, you know, if it makes it to phase one. OK, great. We go on to phase two for a larger population. OK, great. Work, and by right? The time you're phase three, it's an even larger population. Mm-hmm. Now you're starting to not only look at the dosing, but you're definitely monitoring side effects and mm-hmm. adverse effects. If there are any deaths at any phase along the way. Mm-hmm. Even one death, the trial has to stop. Okay, And it stops because you have to figure out why.
0: So does it completely stop? Or it I know our pauses, because I know there's two vaccine trials, I think it's Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca that they've paused It's not forever. aborted, right? It's not, yeah. it's not. The, the study has not been aborted.
1: The, when I say stopped, I mean, It stops like no one else gets dosing until they figure out what's happened or what the cause was. Because when you think about it and we'll go into the recruiting, I know I have a long answer to your question. Okay. but when you start thinking about the recruitment process and you think about who's participating in these trials, you want to make sure that you have in the trials patients that are represented of the population that may be taking those drugs. Mm-hmm. And this is where it gets into people of color. It's very important for us to participate in clinical trials if we can. Mm-hmm. But I know historically. Yes, with Tuskegee like, oh,
0: experiment.
1: and no, Yeah, I'm not doing that. I know what they did before. But see, things like that, the Tuskegee experiment, they didn't know. And a lot of the clinical protocols and trials that go on right now, there's so many things that you have to disclose because of the Tuskegee experiment. experiment. These men had no idea what they were taking these drugs for, what they were monitoring. But now, before you sign up for something, there's a whole list of forms that you have to sign, a patient Mm -hmm. consent. It is a little scary, though, to participate in a clinical trial for some people because you just don't know what and how it will affect your body.
0: Mm-hmm. And you don't know if you're taking placebo. That's, that's right. So
1: we'll bring that part back up to the other thing in healthy in phase one, though, when we talk about healthy individuals, those people don't have the disease. They're just mm-hmm. healthy individuals. You're just trying to see, is this a safe drug? drug? It's not until you get into phase two and three that you actually start recruiting people who, have the disease or disease state to participate in the trial. But going back to why it's important for the people who are participating in these trials to represent the population that will be served, it's because everybody's body acts Different. differently.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And genetics matter. Genetics do matter. And so, how me, Marquita, a drug may interact with me may not be the same as it would for you. Both of us are black or African-American women, and there still may be some subtle differences. It's even more pronounced when you start dealing with different races Mm -hmm. because not even just black people, but black Americans versus black Caribbeans. And so you still have trials both in the U.S. and abroad. You don't just want there to be just one trial in Mississippi or one trial in Tennessee, These are global clinical trials because eventually this drug will be on the market in multiple countries.
0: So tell me more about phase three and phase four trials. Like, What do you mean by more about phase three? Just more details. They look for a larger population uh, representative of who you would treat. Look for any adverse reactions and other calls to what will... Like Johnson and Johnson, I think, and AstraZeneca paused here, and then they paused, and they had a study in Europe, I believe it was. But the one in Europe has started again, but the one in the United States hasn't. But like, what will make them resume again? If they figure it out, because they really haven't released what the adverse reaction was for either trial, from my knowledge. I don't know if you know.
1: Yeah. And it really, sometimes they may or may not release it to the public. That's the thing about private companies that are privately held. They don't always necessarily have to reveal the exact reasons why. But if it's an adverse effect, death will stop it, period. But mm-hmm. like I was saying before, if it's death, then they need to see if it's death because of something that was drug related or if it was death that could have just been a natural cause. Be all related. Mm-hmm. It could have been something that wasn't even related to the drug but they have to take time to figure it out and make sure that they are clear beyond the shadow of a doubt that it was not something related to the drug. The phase 3 is really just a larger scale and making sure that they're still monitoring safety, they're still monitoring the effectiveness of the drug, the drug and monitoring the risks okay. involved. So it's a continual build and they're studying it over a longer period of time. Okay. So phase one could be anywhere from months to a year. Phase two, months to years. Phase three is typically, you know, years or so.
0: After phase three, if it passes phase three, what is the next steps to make it to market to? Yeah, typically when you make it to phase three,
1: then you can have the approval to market or go to market. Phase four, 3B, four, these are just other studies that are continuing to monitor the patients after they have started taking the drug. Okay. So it's a continual monitoring process. Once you participate in that trial, they want to see what's going on. And they don't want to know just what's happening right now while you're taking it. You can start to study some longer term effects okay. from the drug.
0: So what do you think about us rushing? the COVID-19 vaccine? Do you think we will have one by the end of 2020?
1: I think that there are some viable candidates there. And I think that there are, like many drugs, like many experiments, things may work for the moment, Mm -hmm. but it's really the longer term effects that matter most. So you may have a drug or you may have a vaccine against this virus, but how sustainable is it? Is it something that only works for right now that it'll cover you for maybe a month or two?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because this is a novel virus, the coronavirus is novel. No one knows everything that we're learning, it's being learned in real time. And so do I think that there would be a vaccine available? Yeah, we have plenty of candidates or else they never would have made it to this phase, you know, one to trial.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But do I think that it's something that's going to be ready for the public?
0: Not at all. By the end of the year? Not at you all. You think it will be ready in 21? And if so, like, what's your toward the end of the year? Just ask, what's your best guess? Given how drugs are developed, how vaccines are developed,
1: it also depends on the severity of the disease mm-hmm. and your level of risk in taking it. So, if it's so much of a public health risk that you've got to do something, so you have all these EULAs out here, these emergency use licenses, mm-hmm. then yeah, we could really see it and be administered mm-hmm. in early to mid 2021. Okay. If you don't get a handle on COVID, my personal level of risk,
0: mm-hmm.
1: nah, you know, 2021, 2022. Okay. Because you needed to be out in trials long enough to see what is actually happening and what's going on. And so it's not that there's something that's bad about it.
0: It's just that we don't know. enough. We just don't know. So you would be apprehensive if a vaccine was on the market, I say early twenty one especially if it was emergency medical authorization versus FDA approved.
1: Yeah, I don't necessarily see how it's going to be on the market for general use. I could see it being on the market for emergency use, but being on the market for you or me or anyone else who wanted to go out and have the vaccination or get the vaccine, I don't see that happening.
0: I don't either. And I wouldn't take a vaccine under emergency. I would only take a vaccine if it went through complete phase three and got the approval of several scientists, Fauci being one of them. But I would need the approval of more people. Well,
1: Even with Fauci. OK, so I take what Dr. Fauci says. In this case, I need to see the data from the clinical trials. So I need that. Like, too. What, he's one person. But what is the data yes. saying? What are these people who actually have taken it? What are they saying? And I mean, if you are a healthy individual and why not? I mean, I think that people ask me what I do it or would I participate in the clinical trial? I would participate in the clinical trial for certain drugs or certain therapeutics. But you have to know your own health. You have to know your own there are certain things that would definitely disqualify you from mm-hmm. participating in a clinical trial. Would you participate in a COVID-19 clinical trial? I've actually been thinking about it. Like, would I really, would I not? Like, I don't take flu vaccines.
0: So to, this is my first year. I took one. Yeah,
1: I've never taken a flu vaccine. So, yeah, I don't know. And it's not that I'm like against it. I just take more safety precautions and health precautions throughout the year
0: where I'm pretty healthy. See, I never got the flu until maybe three years ago and I get it, it seemed like every year around ski season. So Um, I just was taking Tamiflu, but I figured with COVID, flu, cold, just to knock out some of the uncertainty, I figured I would this year. And your profession too. You're in the medical profession. So
1: for those people though, If I was in the medical profession and if I was seeing patients and if there was a vaccine out that had passed phase one and and two with promising results, if I needed to take the vaccine, then I would, under an emergency use, I probably would consider it if I was in that profession. Okay. But again,
0: I don't think I can. It's the balance. I just don't trust. It's really the
1: balance. Like, how do you balance it out? Is COVID that high of a risk that we need to do some mitigation like right now? Or if people would just wash your hands and stay in and not feel as though, okay, I'm an American, I can do whatever I want to do and go wherever I want to go, we could slow the spread where people won't have to take this
0: vaccine before we have enough clinical trial data. That's true. But it's just kind of, I mean, it's kind of hard to regulate all of Americans, especially in our present society. No offense to Americans, but some of us are selfish. So it's kind of hard and it's hard to not be around other people. And I'm an introvert and I miss being around other people. So I'm sure it's hard for others, especially if like your business, like restaurants and clubs and people who are in a business where you basically need a lot of people to be there for your business to run successfully. It's
1: kind of hard. So definitely, based on the American freedoms. It's funny because right before we came on here, I was talking to a friend who lives in another country and he's an American, but he was saying like having to be isolated and shut down for a month, not being able to go outside unless you were walking your animals or dogs or whatever. It was tough for him because he was like, this ain't America. There's no way you could be in America and be regulated to this extent. Nope. But that country
0: is not seeing what we're seeing in America. No, because people actually listen to mandates and yeah. other things. or They have to, depending on where where you are. So do you think if they do develop a vaccine, will it be like multiple doses or like the flu vaccine? You have to get one every year or... Again, coronavirus is so novel. We
1: don't know anything about it. You know, you don't even know If this virus has mutated by now, I mean, are we still dealing with the same strain that we were talking about last year, which is like the flu? You take the flu shot every year just because it's not the same strain, like the same thing about the cold. You get a cold. The cold is a coronavirus. Mm -hmm, Just mild. And so if you get a cold every time you get a cold, it's a different cold. It's not the same one. Because your immune system has developed the antibodies to that cold strain,
0: mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: Just like with the flu, you know, you get flu A, B, influenza A, influenza B. You take that flu shot hoping that that's the vaccine of the flu that's affecting everybody. But which is why sometimes
0: you still get the flu, you still get
1: the flu. You get it wrong. Like, OK, that was the wrong vaccine this year. Yeah, I think first- coronavirus will be the same way mm-hmm. where you don't know. You just don't
0: know. It's scary. If you were the president, what would your strategy have been initially from the beginning, although we don't know what all the information they knew in January or February before the outbreak here?
1: I would probably rely more on my experts. I would follow the science. I think that it's important to not only consider the science, but also consider the economy and also consider the country in which we live. And so we can't just shut something down and not consider the impact that it's having on other areas. Mm -hmm. So it has to be a more collaborative approach. So yes, I'm focused on health, but I also understand that if this public health crisis really expands, it's going to impact the economy. And so bring in the economists, What's our level of risk? How much can we actually afford to lose, and still survive in relation to this public health crisis that we're having? So it's you know the whole risk thing. So I would rely more on people who know what they're talking about, people who have studied this, and less on my own innate ability of thinking. Okay, well. Two plus two is four. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the flu season had last this. So this coronavirus shouldn't be this. No, nah, it doesn't work that way.
0: No, because it's just so totally different diseases, basically. Yeah. So interesting. COVID-19. Whoever thought we would be in this situation. I was talking to this physician today and she was talking about Dr. Fauci. He was interviewed like four years ago. And they were asking him about what is like the scariest thing that he thought could happen, I guess, to the United States. And he said like a airborne illness similar to the swine flu that (laughs) would come and infect the country and we couldn't get control over it. And that's what happened. I mean, the man is brilliant (laughs) because that's what happened, basically. Anyway, a lot of conspiracy theories going around. and yeah.
1: But it's science. It is so science. So when you sit around and you're thinking and you're doing research and you're reading papers and you're sitting in the lab looking at stuff and you're like, man, what if this happened? would mm-hmm. not be good. So it's possible.
0: And that's what he does, though. He deals with outbreaks. That's right. <laughs> that's his job. He's been doing it for at least since Bush, hasn't he? His uh, six administrations, I thought.
1: Yeah, he's been it since the first Bush. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people think about it. An epidemiologist, that's what they do. They study disease and disease distribution. And so they've been doing this for years upon years upon years. So they know. I mean, people want to say, how do you know this? You believe in statistics. It will happen.
0: Yeah. And it's
1: here. Just like you know, early on when I was doing my early, early Facebook posts and lives talking about mm-hmm. the virus, and I was like, "Yeah, you know, statistically, it's impossible that you're not going to know anyone who will be affected with this disease. I mean, somebody's going to get it that you know, and it may be you." <laughs> True. And look what
0: happens. Right I know several people. <sighs> Some people still think it's a hoax, though.
1: Yeah, and you know, the other thing that I really want people for listening when you think about COVID. Let's erase the stigma behind this virus. There is nothing wrong with having COVID. There isn't anything that you did wrong to contract this virus. It's not like people want to say, oh, well, you know, it's AIDS. Or... No, it's not like that, where there is a stigma or something that you did by being careless or...
0: No, you breathed. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You, you breathe. What you you breathe. all have to do to live. <laughs>
1: Now, people will walk around and say, oh, yeah, I have the flu. Stay back. But no one wants to say, oh, I have covid. Stay back. You think it's okay to have the cold or the flu. And it's okay because you don't want to spread that or you don't want people to be around you or you will isolate when you have that. But covid, if more people would just say, oh, yeah, I have symptoms or I had it. And not falling prey to this stigma of you got COVID. Nobody's going to want to be around you or you're going to lose your job or you're going to do this, this, this. That also would be something that would stop the spread or
0: slow the spread. Because if you have it. Yeah, I've had it before. So coming out. So. I had it and didn't realize I had it till a lot later, but yes. Asymptomatic people. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I'm talking about
1: people who have symptoms that are still going out.
0: Yeah, just stay at home. Yeah. Well, some I know some people who had it, but they didn't know they had it, or maybe they did know they had it, but they claimed they had to work because they couldn't be out of work or things like that. So, what are your thoughts on it? On what COVID and telling people about it, or just in general, it's a disease. I mean, and I don't understand like why wearing a mask is a political statement. It slows the spread, so I don't see the big deal. I get tired of wearing a mask, but I think it's necessary. When patients come to see me and they want to pull it down on their chin, I have to keep telling them like a child, like, pull your mask up, pull your mask up, which is why we're in 95 masks at work. I mean, it's the inconvenient, but if this disease is deadly, which it can be to some people, you don't know who it could, you know, have a bad course or who has a mild course. You don't know. Then the people don't know because some people caught it on Wednesday and were dead on Friday. Yeah. So you never know. I trust science and I know enough people who've had COVID and I don't know people who pass from COVID or I know people who know people who pass from COVID. So I take it seriously. Mm-hmm. and I think everyone should, but it's hard to try to live your life and to be around people and still, you know, take COVID seriously. So it's cause it's kind of like you. <laughs> the best way to stop the spread is to socially isolate and we are social beings. So it's kind of like, it's kind of hard deal with both at the same time. How did you go from becoming, like being a scientist to being a consultant? How did you make that in your career? When
1: I was working at GSK, the last project or so that I was on, it was an internal consulting project and it was fun. I enjoyed it. And I said, oh, if I could do that for them, then I can do this for me. And so being a consultant is really people are hiring you for your expertise in a certain area. And I took all of the things that I've learned. So my consulting is on leadership development. So that's my area of expertise is in leadership and strategic planning. So a lot of things that fall under leadership. And I know people saying, but you're a chemist. What does it have to do with anything? So my career trajectory started out in the lab. But I moved into management and senior level positions in the science. And so I moved from the big side of the science to the business side of the science. Actually ended up um, working. My last role in corporate was in the finance organization. And so you learn all of these things along the way. And in consulting, you help people build their business. So one of the things, if you go to my website, EntropyConsulting.com, my tagline is helping you turn your intent into results. And that's what consultants help you to do. They advise you on different areas. And as a leader in your leading organizations, there are just things that you need to know how to do. There are things that you should be doing, whether you're listening. And I focus on developing epic leaders. And Mm -hmm. epic is being entrepreneurial Entrepreneurial in your thinking, not necessarily that you're about to start a business, but all leaders Mm -hmm. need to be entrepreneurial. So you need to take advantage of how do you make decisions? How are you thinking? Leaders need to be professionally uh, flexible and professionally adaptable. Everything won't go the same way every time. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to make those shifts and adjust. Leaders need to understand themselves. And so there's the intrapersonal awareness. What's your leadership style? What's your learning style? What's your communication style? Leaders need to know interpersonal interaction. So, how do you interact with others? How do you deal with conflict? How do you collaborate? And then the last, the C in Epic, is leaders need to be culturally conscious. Culturally conscious means a lot of things, not just about diversity and inclusion, which is a part, Mm -hmm. but it's also about ethics. It's about understanding the environment, understanding the culture in which you are operating in. What are those unwritten rules? And how do you navigate that path of those unwritten rules? What may work in a scientific environment may not work in a political science environment. What works in the medical field doesn't necessarily work in the K through 12 field. So you have to understand the different nuances of the culture. So I put all those things together and tropia is bringing order to chaos. So that's how I made the pivot. It seems like it's kind of random, but it's actually a nice smooth and somewhat linear transition.
0: Sounds good. Any last minute pearls of wisdom that you want to share with me and my listeners about science, about business, about consulting? I would just say do what you like. And if there is something that you
1: like, you're passionate about, make sure that you are learning more about it and just following your dreams. Life is too short to really just settle for what someone else wanted you to do. You've got to do what you want to do. And even if people don't understand it, even if people don't understand why you're doing this, if it's something that you want, if it's something that you're passionate about, there's always people out there that can help you achieve your dream. But you have got to be the first person that takes those first steps towards doing it.
0: That's true. I would agree. Well, thank you for joining me today. It was fun. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you. Thank you. Running. You know what I would I, at one
1: point in time I thought about running and people always say, well, running is so therapeutic, but no, not for this one in the knees and the ankles, but
0: you, you can walk uh, or yeah. other things.
1: Walking is good. And actually walking is what got me in the, um, yeah. Walking is
0: good. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. Well, thank you again. As mentioned, this episode was previously recorded. Since the recording of this episode, Three potential vaccines have shown promising results, one being the Pfizer, the other Moderna, as well as AstraZeneca. Pfizer has applied for emergency authorization use, and the other two will be applying any day now. I mentioned previously that I would have concerns if the vaccine was approved via emergency authorization. The problem with COVID-19 is that it is highly contagious and it can be lethal. Over a quarter of a million people have died with COVID-19. In the United States, it has also shut down the world and the economy. The pressing issue is do we wait till we get all the data or do we make the vaccines available in order to stop the spread of COVID-19 and to try to get life back to normal. So there is a risk analysis. I talked with a good friend yesterday. She said she would get the vaccine as soon as it was available. She works in an environment where COVID-19 is rampant. She knows over 20 people who have died from COVID-19. So the risk to her of catching COVID-19 and potentially potentially having a bad outcome is more risky than the risks involved in taking a, a new vaccine. I, on the other hand, have had COVID-19, a mild case. And one of my questions is, if you had COVID-19, do you need to take the vaccine? There's question about the long-term immunity. If you had COVID-19, I had antibodies at least six months after my diagnosis. I had COVID-19 in early March, and I donated plasma in August, and I still had antibodies. So one of my questions is, again, is do I need to have the vaccine as well as others who've had COVID-19 if they have proof of remaining antibodies? The studies were conducted on people who had not had COVID-19 exposure or have had evidence of disease. Two, do we know the long-term immunity? Will people need vaccines every year, or every two to three years? We do not know this because the data is preliminary. Also, the studies indicate that the vaccine is safe, but in order to fully know we need more data and that only comes with time. I've read that some people get mild symptoms of COVID for one to two days after the injection. The concern with this is if people do not know about all the possible symptoms, they may not return for the second dose. And will they have partial immunity or will it be a case where they're naive, as in they would be the same as a person who had no exposure? These are some of my concerns. I admonish you to evaluate your risk and to speak with your primary care physician when the vaccine is available. It also may depend in my profession, it may be required. Also, I have a question as far as, I said it would not be available probably until April for the general public. And will the general public be able to choose which vaccine they would like? Will it depend on the resources of each state? Will it depend on whether a person has insurance or not? Will it depend on the type of insurance? Which vaccine is available? These are a few questions that I have concerning the vaccine. Up this episode of Running Is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Please, if you already haven't, download Running Is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or however you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or possible show topics, please email Running Is Cheaper Than Therapy OLB. OmahaLoveBrown at gmail.com. Again, that is running is cheaper than therapy. O as in Omaha, L as in love, B as in Brown at gmail.com. Dr. Brown can also be reached via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Handle we, O U I Life, L I V E, we, O U I Love, L O V E again, we, O-U-I, life, L-I-V-E, we, O-U-I, love. Thank you and please tune in again.